Welcome to Book Wandering with me, Anna James. I'm the author of the Pages & Co series and an arts journalist, and Book Wandering is the podcast where I talk to another writer about their most beloved children's or YA book. This episode, I spoke with my friend Nikita Gill. Nikita is an incredible poet. You've probably seen her work on social media, and she has written several books of poetry, including These Are the Words, Great Goddesses, and Where Hope Comes From. You can find more about Nikita and her poetry at, at Nikita underscore Gill on Instagram. Nikita's choice was J.M. Barry's Peter Pan. Peter first appeared as a character in Barry's work in 1902, but the version we know best was published in 1911. This is a book that means a lot to Nikita, but is a book which she's shifted in her relationship with over time. We had lots of fun trying to work out what on earth Barry was going for at certain points, digging into the eatable shenanigans, and also celebrating the wonder and whimsy of the story. You can find Nikita's books and Peter Pan on my case of books page at bookshop.org.uk, which is linked below. And finally, before we get into the episode, just to quickly note that while the podcast is largely suitable for children, this isn't geared at younger listeners. Welcome, Nikita. Thank you so much for coming and being a guest on Book Wandering. It's lovely to have you. Thank you so much for inviting me and uh, accommodating me despite all the chaos. <laughs> <laughs> We've had a slightly chaotic start, but it's all in hand now. <laughs> so I am so excited to talk about the book you've chosen because I had a real time reading it because I realized um, that, well, so I should say the the reveal is that Nikita has chosen Peter Pan. And on reading it last week, I realized that I'm not sure I've I ever read it as a child or had ever read the actual book, perhaps ever. Uh, and it's quite a reading experience. Mm-hmm. So I guess before we get into all of that, I would love to just start with how you first encountered the book. Um, so I was, I think, um, as a child, my parents were very diverse readers um, and they read books from all over the place. And one of the books my mom read to me when I was very little was Peter Pan. Um, And I think what I loved about Peter Pan when I was a child, um, it it was the fact that, um, you know, from uh, just, just like Wendy and her brothers, I had like a big window um, and the idea, and I had uh, again, when you are read to when you are a child, you develop a very um, cinematic imagination. I would say absolutely because you can you can picture. I think writers in general we do, don't we? We can picture, we can picture how the story goes. Um, so long before I watched the Disney cartoon, um, and what I think J. J. M. Barry does very well, um, both in in a very visceral uh, way but also in a really poignant way, is that he he's very good at his descriptions. And it's very, very easy to picture because he spends so much time describing the environment. And I would say um, when it comes to describing even, you know, uh, one of my favorite sections of the book is, is when they build Wendy her house. And, you know, and she, she kind of, uh, so the Lost Boys build Wendy a house um, and, and they talk about how they build a, build the house. And then they talk about how they live in the house and they even describe, he even describes uh, Tinkerbell's teeny tiny apartment, um, which is, which is beautifully, beautifully described. Um, and I think, you know, when, when someone is such a descriptive writer um, and when you're a child, you're, you're basically a blank slate. So you don't really know what to question 
all you you get you get taken away in the adventure of it all this boy appears at 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 these children's window and he can fly and he he talks about living somewhere um in the stars, he talks about living a second star to the right, straight on till morning, which is such a romantic description. Oh, it's just incredible. I did get, when I read that in the actual book, I did get goosebumps. Like it's, what an incredible line. It really, and it really is. Um, and of course, as I got older, um, I think I must have been about 16 when I reread mm-hmm. the book again. And last prior to that, last time I'd read the book was when I was six, seven, very little, right? right? Like I was a very small child. And I started questioning things. The first thing (laughs) I questioned was, um, firstly, poverty was one of the first points of discussion in the book, right? right? And I think that was really interesting to me because the first thing that comes out is they are trying to make sure that they can afford to keep Wendy. Yeah. Right? Like, and that's thrown right in there um, about three pages in. Um, yeah. <laughs> the very beginning of the book is all about Mr. and Mrs. Darling and their marriage and how they fell in love and then whether they can afford to have and keep children. That is the beginning of the book. That's the first chapter. And it's the maths that he does to make sure, like it's broken down. There's a whole page given to it of Mr. Darling just breaking down um, all the expenses that they have to make sure that they can keep this child that they've had which as a child, I completely missed, you know, because I was like, oh, you know, my, my parents do math to make sure that the household <laughs> expenses are paid. This is the same thing. It is not the same thing <laughs> <laughs> because they were they were going to give Wendy away. With, and and the, the, the really sinister thing is we don't know what that means. Um, right. Or are they going to give her away to a relative? Are they going to put her up for adoption? Are they going to, what does that mean? Right. And then the same calculations are then done for her brothers, John and Michael. Um, And it's it's very uh, that's so based in realism for a book, which is supposed to be a fairy tale for children. It's so based in in, in realism. And I understand why it's done. I suppose when J.M. Barry was writing this book, there were some very difficult things going on. There was a lot of conflict, a lot of poverty. Um, And obviously that is understandable. And that is probably one of the least kind of surprising things about the book, right? <laughs> because then we kind of start realizing, uh, that I, again, I was still 16 at the time, and I was like, okay, so on one hand, this boy shows up at the window and he decides that he's going to uh, take these children on an adventure. That's a lovely six-year-old way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is this boy shows up at their window and suddenly decides that he's going to take away the little girl like, and it's quite, it's a struggle. Like, yes, she's like, I'm, I don't want to go. I don't want to. And the only reason the brothers end up going along is because that's the only way she feels safe enough to go. She's like, no, no, no. I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can, you know, I, I'm, I'm only 12. I can't be a mother. I can't do any of these things. Like, what are you asking me to do? And she's pulling away from him. And he's mm-hmm. being very forceful. And the way it's described as well as like, He's promising her things like any kidnapper would, you know. I can give you this. Like, I've got puppies and ice cream and, 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 you know, you can do all of these things. And and we really need a mother. We really need a mother. And this 12-year-old girl, you know, who is very much back in the day socialized already to be, um, 
you know, to, to prepare herself for what it means to be a grown up yeah, woman. Absolutely. Uh, you know, she, she, she doesn't have any framework to question what is going on, which is terrifying. It is. I think this is something we'll probably come back to. The whole conversation is the book is such a unsettling combination of a very childlike wonder with a deeply adult sensibility. Right. In a way that is, as an adult, really quite unsettling mm. to read. Mm. It really just dashes between these moments of magic yeah. and incredibly sort of things from an incredibly grown-up perspective. And and the, the terrifying thing about the things which are from a very grown-up perspective is uh, uh, some of them are just mentioned very casually in passing to the point that you're just like, wait, what? Yeah. You know, what yeah. I'm sorry, what did you just say? Uh, because it's like, for instance, The Lost Boys. They are, it, I think in the Disney movie, what they do is that no one grows up. I think that's mm -hmm. the way they've ended up addressing this is that no one grows up. Everyone is like Peter. Once you get to Neverland, everyone mm -hmm. stays the ages that they are. No one grows up. But in the book, um, they they are growing up. The Lost Boys are growing up. And what J.M. Barry says is, oh, Peter sometimes thins them because he doesn't, you know, growing up is expressly forbidden. And that's just mentioned in passing. And you're looking at it and you're going, he thins them. Yes. <laughs> I feel like I really was struck when you were talking earlier and you were like, what does that mean? I feel like there's so many bits in the book where you're like, but what does that mean? Like, there's the bit where the Lost Boys live in this kind of underground home, which again, is that for the most part is written with wonder and imagination and magic. They have each have their individual trees that yeah. they have hollowed out yeah. to slide down into their underground yeah. home. Yeah. But then again, in passing... It says that if there's not a tree that's the right size for the boy, Peter adjusts them. The boys, not the trees. And you're like, what does that mean? What does that mean? J.M. Barry, what does that mean? <laughs> Peter would just do something to adjust them. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just never spoken of again. You're just like, okay, okay, I guess we'll carry on until you get to the next bit where you're like, what does that mean? Well, this is it. When you're a child, you don't have the, um, I think you don't have the critical thinking to be able to go, what, was, what does that mean? Because it's mentioned as a sentence and you're just so enthralled with the story. Mm -hmm. So um, I've just written um, this book, which is Retellings of the Panchatantra, which are, you know, 10 animal tales um, and therefore mm -hmm. five to seven-year-olds. And my editor and I did a lot of work to remove the what does that mean sentences <laughs> because there are a lot of those in the original Panchatantra as well. Right. Right? Like there's a lot of like death and like, gore and 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 stuff and, and and a lot of it is like moralized as well if this happened then of course you know this animal would die and and that's just the lesson in the story and it's like did the animal have to die to give that moral um you know and it, it just it's like you kind of when you're retelling the story you're kind of like well that i think we can question that a little bit and retell it in a different way but this is exactly why i'm looking at peter pan and i'm going Wow. So if you look at it from an adult perspective, this is a horror story. 
<laughs> yeah, I think um, when I when I was reading it, I think I posted an, a picture of an extract on my Instagram stories, mm. and I described it as a beautifully written Freudian hellscape. It, exactly, which is kind of how I think I stand yeah. by that. Yeah, it's uh, it's very dark. I mean, talking about the violence in the in your retellings uh, or what you were addressing, it's also very violent. A lot of people, including children, die and are killed by other children. Mm. Peter kills pirates on page. Yeah. John and Michael kill pirates. Yeah. They are tiny children. I think, and is the youngest four? He's four. And he kills a pirate, like, just in cold blood. It's it's also it's, it's Lord of the Flies with magic, isn't it? That's what this book is. Like <laughs> oh that's that's yes. when I was reading it. Uh, like again, for for when we were about to do the podcast. And when I was sixteen, I hadn't read Lord of the Flies yet, but I was reading a lot more. I was reading other things. So I was reading um, in drama. We were doing Amadeus, so we were understanding the concept of of jealousy um, from a very different perspective. And of course, then Tinkerbell comes into that, right? Like. Her jealousy is so um, bitter that it, it it nearly ends up getting Wendy killed repeatedly, mm-hmm. right? And there's, there, that's just in in the story and it's written around. And I think this is J.M. Barry's skill, I think, that he's able to turn these quite vicious things into this grand adventure for children. And it doesn't come across as the Lord of the Flies to a child until you read it as an adult and you're like, oh, Oh no! <laughs> and there's this the, the 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 trauma of the parents, and it's, he spends a lot of time talking about how grief. A lot of time with the parents. <laughs> I want to come back to the darlings as the parents, yeah. But I just wanted to just one thing that you said about because I do think an interesting discussion is around how much when we're children and we appro- we we encounter these things, like. Because in many ways, Neverland does represent the kind of wildness and fear of being a child. And I do think children have a capacity for the macabre and the violence. They do. That is because it's divorced from real life consequences. We can't think about a child killing a pirate without thinking of trauma and bloodshed and violence. Whereas as a child, well obviously not for all children but most children mm. that it's that that it, it's fantasy isn't mm. it and I and perhaps that's why I don't know I think this book more than any other that I've come to really has made me kind of get into a tangle about what children's books are and who they're for and what's okay and what's not okay because you know when we've revisited other uh, you know classics or older books across the podcast this sort of thing does come up in books of the time in terms of things that have yes problematic tangles but this one I think yeah Yeah. (laughs) more than any other children's book I've read has really got me into a real tangle about it all this this you know like I know there'll be lots of people who are who will probably listen or maybe you know, hear us talking about it and, and wonder what we're talking about. But I think yeah. <laughs> um, the best way to describe it is, I think the Disney movie came out 20, 30 years ago, 30, more than 30 years ago, I think now. Yeah, let me, I'll do a quick Google as you're, chat, as you're talking. And they sanitized the book 30 years ago to be able to tell that story. Um, yes. You know, so so even though, or maybe I think... Oh, yeah. 
It's 70 years ago, 1953. Oh, wow. So the the Disney movie came out in 1953. Yeah. And they sanitized the story then, you know, like because they didn't go into so much stuff that is mentioned here. For instance, there's no killing, you know. Uh, There's a lot of like play fighting. There's a lot of like sword fighting. There's a lot of that. But there isn't any killing. And if a book, a movie from 70 years ago was wise enough to sanitize this book, all I'm saying is, like, <laughs> if you're an adult, definitely read the book before promising to read your kids the story. <laughs> oh, 100%. And actually, one thing I was really... So I read an edition that, and this is not to ding on a specific publisher, but I read an edition that is published for children, like, you know, one of your just normal classics. And I was surprised having read it that it didn't have any form of introduction, contextualization. The only additional content is kind of fun quizzes at the end. And I was surprised that there was zero. But again, that comes back to this sort of our ability as children to just kind of run with whatever we encounter. But then having said that, I don't know that this is one we should, we should be encouraging children to just run with. <laughs> I mean, there's there's a really great play. Um, and I, I don't know whether they've done a musical as well, but I think uh, the play is lovely because the play has done a lot to um, address, I think, some of the things that we are concerned about right. over here. Um, and the reason I picked this book specifically was because it had mm-hmm. such a large impact on me when I was a child, right? right? Um Re, uh, a story being read to me by my mother, um, the, you know, the the Disney movie, the, you know, I was I was very much a Peter Pan girl. Um, you know, I, I over identified with Wendy. And I think the reason I over identified with Wendy is also because my mother constantly told me that I was a mother to my younger brother. Oh, so wow. I identified with Wendy, you see, and I, I, I now know that that wasn't the right thing to do to a little girl who was only six years old when her brother was born. Um, right. You know, and I think in my mother's head, it's like she had like the Peter Pan contextualization for that as well. So it, it's, it's you know, these things have effects and they have effects on whole families. Um, and I know people always say, oh, you know, it's just a children's book and, you know, shouldn't really be questioning children's books and stuff. But I do think that what you give to your children when they are young impacts them for the rest of their lives. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, if you're giving them a story which is, um, which calls a 12-year-old girl, you know, it says, oh, now she's a mother to a whole brood of young men, uh, or young men or, or boys. I don't know how old they are. That's the other thing is like, we know they're aging, but they're strictly forbidden from aging, which, you know, is, is a Peter rule. And we'll come to Peter rules in a bit because they're all a bit wild. Um, <laughs> but what I find really fascinating is the idea repeatedly in this book, um, which both Wendy and Peter share, I don't want to grow up, right? Um, I don't want to grow up. And, and and both of them have had very different reactions to the idea of having to grow up because obviously as a, as a boy and a girl, they have two completely different connotations to what that means. Um, and unfortunately for Wendy, she ends up being exactly what is demanded of her. Yeah, and also produces generations of girls that get stuck in the same loop. Oop. Again, another thing, the book ends with just lists 
of the kind of next three, four generations of Wendy having daughters that are repeatedly taken away by Peter to be his mother. Yeah, yeah. And that's the like happy question mark ending. ending. I almost it's, feel like, I wonder if that's the question here is that, um, you know, because it seems like when Wendy gets taken away, she gets taught how to be a mother where she learns on the fly, basically. And I wonder if that is what um, J.M. Barry is trying to do over there, going, see, it's not such a bad thing to be a mother, um, because Wendy d- did this for all of these boys, and she, and it is implied that she enjoys it. Oh, yes. Yeah. In the context of the book, it very much is something that Wendy wants and enjoys and takes pleasure from. Yeah. Um, it's curious. I think now is a good point to talk about Jay and Barry. I, I, not in any great detail, but I did do a bit of Googling um, because reading the book, I was like, <laughs> Google, Jay and Barry, mother. <laughs> like, what was, what was going on there? Um, and his mother had to take over running her household when she was eight because her mother died when she was only eight. So she ran her father's household from when she was a child. And then when she got married, yeah, (laughs) I wish you could all see Nikita's face. (laughs) And then when she got married, she had 10 children and Jay and Barry was the ninth of 10. And the eldest brother, who was openly his mother's favorite, died young, tragically. And no, wait for it. J.M. Barry used to dress up in his dead brother's clothes and pretend to be his dead brother for his mother. No! So, so, (laughs) so there's clearly some complicated mother stuff, (laughs) brother stuff, arrested childhood stuff, um, going on. He also was five foot three, which again, not to uh, besmirch short men, um, <laughs> but just as a, you know, a facet of a kind of complicated arrested childhood parental thing. Um, and then, of course, he adopted the unofficially adopted Lo- the Llewellyn Davis boys, which yeah. is, I think, perhaps a, a, a separate uh, conversation. Yeah, um, because no one really quite knows exactly what 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 that relationship was and mm. but yeah certainly uh, he also wrote a bo- uh, wrote a biography of his mother um so oh no <laughs> yeah uh, i think it's fair to say that he had some complicated feelings about mothers and a, one thing like, how the so the narrator is very present in the book there's a very strong um authorial or is that am i saying that authorial, authorial? Yeah, author, <laughs> yeah, voice yeah and there's a bit, hang on, I've written it down so I can quote it because there's a bit where he's looking, the narrator is looking at Mrs. Darling and the narrator says, I had meant to say extraordinarily nice things about her, but I despise her and not one of them will I say now. And then a few pages later, I find I won't be able to say nasty things about her after all. If she was too fond of her rubbishy children, she couldn't help it. That's in Peter Pan, people listening. Like I'm not, this is in the book. <laughs> like to say I despise her and then yeah. a few pages later being like it's not her. like there's just so much going on there. But we can see what's happening, right? Like he clearly um I wonder if Peter Pan is very much his brother who never got to grow up, right? I think that 
feels like a and and he always i feels like he was always trying to get into those shoes you know and be the person be be the person who was his mother's favorite mm-hmm. um and because he could never be his older brother like i don't know i'm i'm just armchair psychologist it's just it's just feels very very weird the whole thing i feel like that's a natural point for ones that's certainly where my mind went and i think that also adds an interesting layer to why peter as a character is so cruel and capricious um it when you kind of yes as you say it's very easy isn't it 100 years later to sit on our podcast and analyze it but equally <laughs> yeah equally i think it it's it's necessary though because again like i said it is very much lord of the flies with magic um and we haven't even like <laughs> scratched the surface as yet um it's just right <laughs> I, the reason again the reason i picked this is because um it had such an impact on me when i was a child mm. and reading it again when i was 16 I started questioning. And I think a lot of the work that I do comes from questioning the things that I read when I was a child. Um, yeah. You know, I, I've questioned every book I've read. I used to love Enid Blyton. I've questioned every, I've questioned every one of those books. Um, I, 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 I used to love Harry Potter. I've questioned those books. I used to love every single story um, that I spent a lot of time with and I over-identified with as a child I've gone back to to examine that over-identification and examine the story. Um, And I think part of the reason as well is because I think that's a very important thing to do so that you don't get overly attached to any kind of like source material because all children's authors go back to books that we read when we are children. Because those, um, I think one of the questions when I do workshops uh, teaching people is very much, who gave you your first story? Who was your storyteller voice? You know, who who gave you your first story? Who was the person who, um, but because it's the it's the voice of the storyteller that you really fall in love with, right? And which is why it's even doubly, triply, quadruply important to question that voice as you get older, whilst you're forming your own. Um, that's just me like as an author, just like kind of excavating why we're doing this and why I chose Peter Pan uh, as as the book. Because again, you said it was a book that had a major impact on me. I can't think of a single book which I read when I was a child that I haven't gone back to in question, though. This one was the biggest one. And it was the one that also had the biggest impact on me. So, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I'd love to hear. Are you happy to just talk a little bit more about why why this one in particular and what that impact was on you as a person, as a child, but also as a writer? So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when you hear a story about like, um, and it is framed that way, it's about someone, a magical person showing up to your window, um, which does have a bit of an element of changelings, you know, how how fairies mm. steal children and then leave some. But in this story, no one's left behind other than two grieving parents and a very sweet dog. Like yeah. Nana's character by far is my favorite in this entire oh, book. Yes. <laughs> uh, but again, something that, coming back to the book, the whole book has this absurdist, surreal feel, doesn't it? Because Nana is not um, not just uh, an affectionate dog it is a dog who is a sen- is sort of a human yeah she, she's their nurse the- 
but in a very literal way. Yeah. I think I sort of, you know, again, in the Disney film, it's a bit more of a, you know, it's a cartoon and it's, but in the book, she, she's literally their nurse. She takes them to nursery, she feeds them, she clothes them, she does things that a dog cannot physically no, do. No, no, she paws them. And, she literally, yeah. there's a scene where Michael's like, she's taken Michael on her back to get to be bathed and he's fighting her. And I'm like, yeah. you could just jump off. Like, why are you yes. just, and of course, because it's, it's like, the absurd. They're playing with the absurd there. Um, yeah. And there's also the constant question to the absurd where Mr. Darling keeps saying, oh, you know, a dog isn't inappropriate. And Mrs. Darling constantly talking him down from that, going, oh, but she's so good with the children. Yeah. And then, oh my goodness. I mean, when you, sorry, we're tangenting, but this is a book that it's impossible, I think, to talk about without tangents. But of course, with this, the absolutely wild scene towards the end where Mr. Darling is so guilty that he didn't listen to Nana that the children went off, that he goes and lives in Nana's kennel. And then he becomes a local celebrity because <laughs> he travels everywhere in the kennel. So he like hires like a taxi to take him to work in his kennel and he becomes a local celebrity and all the women want to come into his kennel with him and then there's a very odd exchange where Mr. Dar- where Mrs. Darling sort of says are you sure you're not are you sure this is a punishment yeah are you sure you're not enjoying it and he's like no I'm being punished <laughs> and it's just like it's yikes it's so bizarre as well because the um the okay so the inciting incident or the or the night of the major event where Peter comes looking for his shadow and, you know, he 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 enters the bedroom and Tinkerbell is with him. And this is where the kids, I would say, get kidnapped by him, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's what actually happens. And it is actually framed like that in the book because yeah. they were, he wouldn't have spent so much time with the grieving parents if it wasn't framed. And, and there's this constant and repeated sense of danger, right? Yeah. Um, even Nana, it says that Nana barks she barks because, you know, it's dangerous. And just prior, that same day, um, an, an incident has taken place between Michael and the father. And the incident is that Michael doesn't like taking his medicine, as, as a lot of kids, even in Mary Poppins, the kids don't like taking their medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, but the father's way of dealing with it is to tell this story about how he's so brave when he took his medicine and he used to thank his parents and not yell at them the way Michael is yelling at them sort of thing. Um, and then it goes into how, uh, you know, I would take it now, but like I can't find the bottle or whatever because he's hidden the bottle. The father mm-hmm. hates taking his medicine so much that he's hidden the bottle, but they're made has found the bottle and fastidiously placed it at the wash basin, right? And Wendy being a child, because all of them are children, they go and they find this bottle. And and this whole thing happens and the father's like trying to like not take the medicine and he tricks Michael into taking this medicine by lying basically to all three children. And they witness this and he gets really upset because they're looking at him without admiration. Yeah. And, it, and and he No, no, I, I just wanted to say, and the end result of all of this is because he cannot face his children looking at them at him without admiration, he then goes and he like pours the medicine into Nana's bowl and yeah. lies to her and says, It's milk, go and drink your milk. And then obviously it's human medication, so she feels sick. And she looks at him, not in the way of like upset, but just sad and he punishes her for that by yeah. locking her in the kennel mm-hmm. like 
<laughs> it's a trip of a book, isn't it? It's, Freud really would have a field day, I think it's fair to say. It's just the fact that he could not face his own guilt yes. that leads to all of this cycle of events that, you know... <laughs> yeah, Mr. and Mrs. Darling are so present in the book, even when they're not on the page. Like they are so integral to why the story happens, how the children feel about leaving and coming home. And that the author is very, the, or, when I say the author, I mean the narrative voice, yeah, whether yeah. we take that as J.M. Barry or, you know, the person telling us the story is very focused on Mr. and Mrs. Darling. Um, it, yes, it's. Anyway, but we've gone on a magic, yeah, a massive tangent. Sorry, from, <laughs> no, from you, uh, from your relationship with the book, which uh, I think is, uh, yes, key to all of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll go back. We'll go back to that. Um, so when my mother read me this story when I was a child, it, it very much was again. I have that big bay window. I have like the. I had like a, a little window seat. I used to read there. Um, so it was, it, it, you know, picturing this boy coming down and like taking my hand and taking me off on this grand adventure somewhere, you know, and on second star to the right, straight on till morning, as, as he says, very magically in the book. Um, and you know, it's, it's an island. So my mother was an amazing storyteller. She is my storyteller voice, um, because she not only read me stories, um, she also made up stories. And on one at one point, and this is connected to this, um, at one point she had made up this story about an island of Leafy. And uh, we used to go on these long, long journeys with my father on the ship. And she told a ne- almost like a never-ending story. So oh. every day there was a new part to this story and she had invented it over the course of the day, which... As an adult, I appreciate a lot more. As a child, I was like, this is just something like my mother can do, you know. Uh-huh. But as an adult, the idea of like, so say it was like 60 days of a trip every day. So it was like 60 parts. There are TV wow. shows that cannot do that. Um, yeah. You know, just pointing this out. I uh, feel like just for context, you're saying on the ship in 60 days because your dad was... A sailor. In, yes. He was a sailor. He was a context, captain. Yeah. He's a captain out at sea. Um, and, and over our summer holidays, when we were very, very young, uh, we used to be able to go and sail with him it, it, uh, because you can do that as the captain. And I think as the junior officers, they can bring their families along okay. up until the children are a certain age. I think it's like under under 12. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it is. And then after that, you can't do it anymore. Okay. Um, but we were very little, uh, my brother and I, and my mom was telling this this never-ending story and all sorts of things were in there, right? So it, it, just like in Neverland, you have um, Native Americans, you have pirates, you have mermaids, you have, um, you know, uh, 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 fairies, you have like an entire enchanted forest, you have these lost boys who also, you know... Um, Happened, And it's quite, there are lots of really funny parts in the book, like how, you know, they're all kind of moving in a circle and they're just, you know, <laughs> trying to look for each other, like all of these, yeah. you know, the entire island and all of them are just constantly missing each other. And there's also a crocodile at the very tail end looking for Captain Hook. And it's just, uh, my mother made up this uh, very lovely story about how there were dinosaurs and there were mermaids and there were fairies, but they were not the nicest of fairies. Um, and quite like Tinkerbell, I think, inspired by that. And there was, but the main family was this dinosaur family of Tyrannosaurus rexes. And, <laughs> and baby rex used to get up to all sorts of mischief. 
And there was Goldilocks who walked in and like took over Baby Rexha. So the Goldilocks story was taken and put into that. And, you know, she just made up this in- incredible story. And like there's a volcano and the volcano erupts. And, you know, what happens then? The volcano is erupted. What happens to all the characters? It was such a a brilliant, intense, powerful story. I always wish she had written it down because I think yeah. she'd make a great children's book author. Um but yeah, she never ended up writing it down. But I remember that story. And I think it was very inspired by Neverland and and the the idea of like, and I think Peter Pan was in it. I do right. think Peter right. Pan came to visit. And I think Peter Pan did like, take my brother and me off. And she put that into the story. And then I, we were like living there and Wendy was there. And like the, you know, the two, like it was what we all lived with the lost boys. And it was, it. she very much inserted us into these stories so we had a stake in them you know yeah and I think that's probably another reason why this story had such a powerful effect on me so the version of the story that I think I remember is probably the version my mother told me which was a lot less Freudian it was just it was a lot more fun and I think the Peter Pan that was in her story wasn't a narcissist (laughs) or you know uh, 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 any kind of like, you know, he wasn't um, selfish. And Jane Barry himself says in the story that he's quite selfish and cruel. Oh, yeah. Um, but the Peter Pan that my mother, you know, told the story around wasn't cruel and he wasn't narcissistic. He was just, you know, somebody who wanted to take everybody on a grand adventure because he was so giving. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And that just, doesn't that just speak to the magic of stories and the stories we encounter when we're young and also just how porous their their edges are, their boundaries are in a wonderful way. I think the fact that often we remember stories a little bit differently and it's because either, it's just either how we process them as children or because the way that they've been told to us. I also love, because Neverland in the book, it's, I think, implied fairly explicitly um, that basically Neverland would look different for every child. Mm, and so mm. this Neverland is a kind of smoosh of Wendy, Michael and John's imaginations. Right. Yeah. And I love that because your mum's story was a smoosh of her imagination, your imagination, and my all the different characters yeah. coming. Um, but then that's interesting as well, think about your own work, because, you know, you obviously really pull from a lot of different kind of a lot of different types of stories, cultures, mythologies. Mm. And mm. is that, how much do you think that is rooted in kind of the way you were told stories as a child in Peter Pan? I think it very much was such a great influence. I think stories, um, when when we were on board the ship um, and we were sailing, on one hand, it's it's amazing. But also on the other hand, it, it can it can get very, like when you, there was no internet. Right. right. So obviously, when we were young, most of us were young, there was no internet. We had uh, VHS tapes, you know. So my mom had all of the Winnie the Pooh. She had all of like the Disney movies. Peter Pan was one of them. Little Mermaid was one of them. I think Little Mermaid was the other one that had a very big impact on me, but not my mother never read me that story. I think she found it very, very sad, that story. Um, yeah. Whereas at the end of, of Peter Pan, at least the kids, you know, are okay. <laughs> Um, but, but, um, I do feel like there was this, you, you, all we really had was stories. So whether it was watching them on VHS tape or these, you know, books that my mother carried with her or her telling us these stories or 
you know, other than that, there was just our textbooks, you know, and all the homework that we had to do. So it just, I do feel like, uh, you know, stories became such an integral part of who I was as a person because for months and months and months, and at one point we used to only return for two months and we used to be gone right. for 10, 10 months of the the wow. year. So stories were a huge part of who I was, traveling, meeting people, hearing their stories. And I think at the end of the day, one of the only things that we leave behind really, you know, because everything material fades, um, is the stories, is the memories that we give to the people that we love. Um, so I think, you know, there's this, this major conversation happening online about like, oh, you know, AI is going to replace all the writers or whatever, but I don't think AI could do what my mom managed to do in those like days and days of like new installments to this island of Leafy. Um, and you can see why Peter Pan had such an influence then because mm. he was, you know, he he basically felt like uh, uh, someone that we lived with and grew up with and, and yeah. knew. Um, so going back to this story now um, and reading the actual version J.M. Barry wrote, I feel like, um, yeah, I think J.M. Barry should have had a mum like mine because I think yeah. he would have been a much happier person. <laughs> Uh, I think I I can't help but agree with you. And also not to get too Freudian about it myself, but of course, growing up, spending a lot of time on boats, uh, perhaps it's not a coincidence that Peter Pan and Little Mermaid, which are quite sea-focused sea books, uh, the pirates, uh, you know, not many children will have read it having spent actual time on on a boat, yeah. uh, which must have been, well, and then Captain Hook. I mean, we don't have time to get into every single element of this book, but Captain Hook as well, he he very much is described how the Disney film yeah. has him. Um, but again, he's another one where there is a, uh, honestly, I think, I hope it's fair to say, a sexual undertone to oh, yeah. him. Yeah. Um, but he also wants... He's described as very sort of handsome and charming. Yeah. But he also, the pirates also want Wendy to be their mother. Like everyone on the island wants Wendy to be their mother. And all of the female characters are trapped in this wife, mother. Like there's that bit where they're... Um, Do you know the, the, the disturbing thing? You pointed this out and I'm just going to come in if you don't mind yes, and just say this absolutely. before I forget it. There is a very sexualized way of describing Tinkerbell, which made me really uncomfortable. Um, oh my goodness, yeah. And and it's very much implied that the reason why Tinkerbell is not adequate is because she's common. So she can't play any kind of maternal figure role, nothing like that. And that is what makes her jealous of Wendy. Um, and, and it's the idea of what is a a, a wrong type of woman is very much mm -hmm. put on Tinkerbell. Oh, absolutely. She's described as being, I had to look this word up. She's described as being en bon point, en bon point, which I think maybe is a French word, <laughs> but um, which essentially means busty, buxom, like, um, and <laughs> it's just like, she's, a, she is explicitly in the text, like a sexy fairy and just who's in love with Peter and wants to kill Wendy. Well, like, it's also like the first ever appearance of her when she comes into the children's room. The first thing he does is describe the way what she's wearing. She's mm -hmm. dressed in this like skeleton leaf, which is very low cut. That's literally in the first sentence description of her. And like it uh, so as to um, do justice to her fine figure. Right. And you're yeah. just 
you're just like, why would that be in it? Why is that necessary in a children's book? Why why, mm. why does that need to be in there at all? Um, yeah, and you're so right. I hadn't picked up on that because also even just the description of Tinkerbell's little kind of nook is very coded in a certain way, isn't it? It's got boudoir. like extravagant, yes, yeah, a boudoir. It's got extravagant fabrics draped everywhere. And she, at one point, they taunt her that if she doesn't come and help them, they'll open the curtain and everyone will see her in a negligee. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. It's yeah. quite she, the time. And she says, you know, she's quite like careful about making sure no one should keeping that curtain pulled when she's dressing, mm. which implies that, you know, they've tried to do that before or something has made her cautious, overly cautious. And you're just like, oh, again, something mentioned in passing, right? Like it's, it's, what does it's that back mean? Back to that. What does it mean? <laughs> um, yeah, I think again, you know, like uh, just to just to preface this in that way, it is a book of its time. But I've read other right. books of their time, and I think this one really, like you said, is 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 special, <laughs> even for its time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and of course, you know, we should um, touch on, um, of course, the way that Tiger Lily in the the Braves are presented, which, do you know what? It's funny because I almost went into it expecting, I was like, I know that Tiger Lily is in it. I know when it was written, I'm expecting this to be troubling. And, but it, but, and yet it still manages to be surprisingly troubling. Worse than, like, I think even- Worse in, than you're expecting. Even, even in the, I mean, the Disney movie 70 years ago, where we all kind of take, you know, look at that and we think that's quite racist, um, the way that it was, you know, the, the, the Native Americans in that story um, and the Braves are portrayed in that story. Um, and they are Native Americans because that is, that's who they right. are. You know, it's a right. Native they're not, American. Yeah. They're not indigenous to Neverland, no, but no. they are obviously a, a pull from one of the kids' imaginations. Right. As, yeah. And they're referred to in a very, like, quite, I think, quite racist way all through the book, um, yep. which we are obviously, we're not going to say that. Um, but But I think... It's just, it's also the way Tiger Lily is kind of sexualized. Firstly, okay, so first of all... I mean, as all the female characters are. Well, she's <laughs> different flavors, but... Portrayed as a prude to start with. She's icy. She's, um, you know, um, and of course, all, all of the women are in love with Peter, right? Like, that's just the, the... The entire undertone of the story is that every woman that is on that island, the mermaids, Wendy, Tinkerbell, Tiger Lily, everybody's mm-hmm. in love all with of Peter. Them. Yeah. All of them. Like this story basically revolves around how all of the women are basically fighting over this one boy. Um, which this is one awful boy. <laughs> awful. He is cruel. He is everything that we, as women, as we're older, we look at a, a boy or a man and we go, oh, I do not like that. Yeah. <laughs> red flags are plenty. <laughs> that just a giant red flag. I'm surprised they mm-hmm. gave him a green outfit even like because <laughs> red is so much more his color. Um <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But but he, he like the the way that the 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 Native Americans are portrayed, the way that um there's a scene at the very beginning where like, you know, um uh, he's he's trying to decide. Jim Barry's like, okay, which which adventure should we tell you about? Because we had a lot of adventures here, and he talks about the Native Americans being plucked from the trees. Um, and I just was like, again, what does that mean? What does it mean? <laughs> <laughs> like, but also like it's just said in such passing that I had to go back and repeat read it like two three mm-hmm. times to understand if like my mind was like 
playing tricks on me or if it meant what it actually... Because he turns them... Whenever he feels like it, and he does this throughout the book, he subhumanizes them or he turns them into objects, right? And Tiger Lily specifically is a very interesting, again, Freudian as hell. Um, but as, a, as you know, she's portrayed as this massive prude, like an ice queen, ramrod straight ice queen, won't marry any of the braves. Any of the braves would want her as their wife, uh, but she just refuses, you know, because obviously she's in love with Peter. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. There's, um, again, like there's the, the the context cues over there of like this, how this like one little white boy is 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 so much more superior to all of the other men, including the yeah. men of color on this island, which mm-hmm. is a whole different conversation. But yeah. <laughs> yes. And also... He's the only one the fairies seem to have blessed with never aging. Well, like we've, I mean, we've, yeah, like we've touched on the whole Lost Boys setup is is never really clear. It's because when I first started, I, it, I was like, have they died? Have they died? Are these supposed to be children who have died or been abandoned? But they're still like, it's never, it's fruitless to try and get an answer to quite what the setup because it isn't an answer but it is it's funny because it's it's supposed to be Wendy and Peter Wendy and Michael and John's imagination but it's the whole place is a product of Peter's whims Mm. Um, Mm. which but again you know not everything has to make sense but uh, no no yeah and it's just very uncomfortable isn't it like there's almost (laughs) I don't want to sound dismissive of it when I say it's what you would expect of a book at the time. But then there's also these kind of very odd layers that factor into the odd layers that are specific to to Peter Pan and Jay and Barry. And, you know, just to really like most of the Braves, to use that as a shorthand, um, they get slaughtered Mm. by the pirates. Mm. They almost all die Mm. in passing. Mm. Um, And the ones that survive kind of are you know, described as being like lying prostrate to Peter in, in, you know, servitude as gratefulness, even though he hasn't done anything. No. And uh, like... I was so uncomfortable when I read that. It's just, it's it's very uncomfortable reading. And I think that the Freudian stuff is almost more knotty and easier to poke fun at almost but that sounds mean but you know what I mean whereas this was awful that is just it's just distressing to read isn't it it's Um, awful that element it's awful I I think um especially as a as a as a woman of color reading that bit right I felt really sad really really sad I think more than anything um I kept thinking that this was the representation that that we got as right. as as and and these are the books that are still considered classics, right. um, and they're still being printed, you know, and they're still um, with no with no context. There's no historical, yeah. I, I th- like at a bare minimum, I yeah. feel like there should be some sort of note at the start, yeah, explaining to children at least at the bare minimum the historical context, yeah, for it. I mean. I can't imagine. I, I know that no one, no parent who has Native American ancestry would ever read this book to their child ever anyway. But imagine if you're a little kid and you're in the library and you have Native American heritage and you happen upon this book and you happen to, because that's how so many of us read, find books. We find them in our Absolutely. school libraries. We find them in, in bookstores. 
you know, we find them in, and libraries are safe haven to so many of us who are like readers who then go on to become writers. Um, you know, the idea of like just a child with Native American heritage, or even like, you know, just a child of color finding this book and and, and reading what happens to, to, to the braves, and they are the braves, and they are, you know, such, again, Disney completely sanitized all of this. But the fact that Disney had the foresight to sanitize that 70 years ago goes to show just how traumatic and mm-hmm. painful this was for any child to read. Yeah. You know, not just a child who was a child of color. Um, and I just think it's really, it really says something that right now, um, at least in the US, um, we are seeing a lot of book bans happen because of 11 right. people who are protesting against, you know, there's a brown person or a black person in a book, or, you know, that that's, oh, there's a gay person in a book. That means this book should be banned. Um, the The idea that really powerful books, um, you know, about, you know, young black girls loving their hair or, or you know, little boys um, who are of color learning to love the skin they're in or children, you know, being able to access stories about their own heritage. Those kind of books are being banned, whereas these kind of books that show um, brutalization are considered classics. And would no one, in fact, if someone ever said tomorrow, that this book should be banned because of the con- like the, the the stuff that is in it. You can imagine the uproar. It would never be allowed. Like Rishi Sunak will probably make a comment on it, <laughs> saying, "Well, no, there is no way." Just because they're looking yeah. for anything, everyone to make would a be outraged, yeah. outraged if people suggested banning this. Yeah, it. Yeah, what? But but what's in it is deeply troubling. So troubling. So troubling. On many many layers and actually you know I said sort of flippantly oh you know the the mother stuff is easier to poke fun at but equally as an adult that's easier to poke fun at but when you think about children encountering it like you say stumbling across it in the library without any context Mm. you know we as as an adult you kind of read it and you roll your eyes and you google Jane Barry's mother Mm. but you know children don't have that context and also we keep making films of it there's a new Peter Pan is it it's like either a prestige TV show or a new film that's coming imminently we keep we keep returning to it and we keep making adaptions of it and we keep holding it up as this is one of the stories it's the ultimate stories you know this is the story that influenced and it is the quintessential you know i think someone once called it the quintessential english children's storybook which do you know what the the thing is actually in many ways it's that's not wrong, is it? It's not. Because all the issues with it are issues Colonia, are deep, colon, colonialism. very deeply British, but it's that they are problems, not things to be celebrated. I would I wouldn't argue that it is a deeply, deeply British book. It's it's like I think it it very much is an emblem of the Victorian age because even where they live, even the London that they talk about, even like the way you know, that there's a whole conversation about the children being given given away because they're not rich enough to, to to keep the children. And this, of course, is happening after the children are born. And, you know, it's it's to the mother to then advocate to keep the children. Yes. Um, and the father who is kind of like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. And mind you, this is a woman who's just given birth and like is just trying to like go, well, I've just given birth, you know. So I maybe- think we should keep him. Yeah. <laughs> or her. The, the biggest one is Wendy because that, you know. Yeah. No, no, it's just it's, the idea that Mr. Darling is, again, it's that fundamental conflict in the book of 
very sexual and entirely sexless. Yeah. So it's the idea that Mr. Darling has had no part in this baby coming. It's like it's only when it's born that Mr. Darling almost notices that it's there. But yeah. Presumably he was involved. And again, it's just that it has this very intense sexual undertone whilst also being a very kind of innocent, sexless. It's such a, even all the discussion of mothers, a lot of it is like, it's so child pretend. It's pretending giving their medicine. And it's 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 also like the role of the father and the mother, right? So there's a mm. really, it's very gendered. Right, like the oh, role, yes. the roles are very, very hugely, gender. yeah. Um, and and it is like, oh, the father's job and the only real role that he has, and the way that we know that Mister Darling is a good father is that he not only goes out and he earns, but he actually talks to his children, right? And that's implied <laughs> very heavily that you know he's a better man than most because he actually speaks to his children instead of just going out earning and then just ignoring that they exist, right? Whereas the mother's role, which is also why the boys, the lost boys want a mother, which is why Peter wants a mother. It's it's done as, oh yeah, you know, she has lots of stories and she tells a story sort of thing. But there's all the domestic service that a mother does, right? Which is the basic nurture of a child was entirely the mother's job. Um, and they are lucky enough that they have Nana, who is a dog, but who does like do, you know, divide that domestic labor between Mrs. Darling and herself. Um, but Wendy doesn't have that when she's looking after the lost boy. She does it all herself. They, in fact, they, when they like Jim Barry does this thing again in a very magical way. But if you really examine it, it's like, oh, um, <laughs> where she spends the whole day cooking for them. Uh, where she, you know, she she looks after them, she cooks for them, she tells them stories. And when they're all in bed, she says she finally has breathing space. And the way she has breathing space is that she starts darning their stockings and she starts patching up their clothes, especially at the knees, because they are rough on the knees. And that is how she takes breathing space for herself. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It, it's It's such a... It's just, it's just such an intense, bizarre book. And even Peter flitting between, like he can never quite decide if he wants Wendy to be his wife or his mother. Oh. You know, there's that scene where they're dancing and then he kind of freaks out and is like, but this is all pretend, isn't it, yeah. Wendy? These aren't my children. And no. Wendy sort of says, well, it can be pretend, but also they are yours. Yeah. You know, you're yeah. responsible for them. And then he doesn't, he freaks out, he doesn't like it. He doesn't want to be responsible for them. And then he asks Wendy, what are you to me? And she says, a loving mother. And he says, yes, yes, yes. And he wants her to like tuck him up in bed. And and then there's that weird exchange where he sort of says, uh, oh, where is it? Where he, uh, he says, oh, Tinkerbell wants something of me that is not a mother, but I don't know what it is. And Wendy knows. That's the other thing. Wendy is given like a knowingness that she's yeah. like, no, it's that's not what she wants. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, it's as, as if women um, from as soon as like, and it's implied even when she's two, she knows that she will have mm. to grow up. Like it's the first scene in the book that she knows that, that it's, it's such a like sad thing to begin the book on because yeah. she's this two-year-old and she goes running and she gets this flower and she gives it to like her mother and her mother says oh I wish you could be this age forever which a lot of mothers say to their kids 
And she knew then that yeah. two was the end of everything. And this is yes. Jim Barry, not me speaking. No, no, this <laughs> is the first paragraph of the book. Uh, Henceforth, Wendy knew that she must grow up. You always know after you are two, two is the beginning of the end. That's the first paragraph of the book. First paragraph. Like, this is two is the beginning of the end. And like, again, um, with, with Peter, what's fascinating about him is that it is repeatedly said all through the course of the book up until that point that Peter did not know the difference between make believe and real because he didn't need yes. to. Yes, like he often, it's, it's said about the discomfort that the lost boys are in because sometimes Peter decides that the meal is a make-believe meal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's at Peter's whims and no one else has any say Yeah, because he doesn't need food. But it's clear that the others do and they are being deprived of it. They're being starved. Yeah, Peter's whims. And even when they defeat the pirates as well and Peter becomes the captain... But again, not in a in a very traditional. He becomes. He tells them what to do. He won't let them eat. He makes them do all the their their servants. Still. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. And and it's it's very interesting how he happens upon the lost boys, right? And why they are no lost girls. That is the other thing which I'm like, oh, that's very <laughs> disturbing. Um, so. In the story, the way it's explained is the reason why, because Wendy's like, why are there so many, you know, like, where do these lost boys come from? And he's like, well, you know, when their nurses are not looking, they fall out of their prams. And if they're not claimed in seven days, that's when they, that's when I take them away and they become lost boys, right? Um, and she's like, why, why doesn't, what about the girls? Well, girls are too clever to fall out of their prams, you see. So much of it, isn't it, is that, and this is, again, what happens in real life. Girls are expected to understand what's going on, be responsible for what's going on. It's our own fault. We, like, we're just expected to hold that knowledge and responsibility from such a young age uh, that boys just are not expected to hold. Well, this is Wendy's knowingness all over again, right? Where does it come from? It comes from the idea that women just know or girls just know. Like, for instance, someone pointed out the other day, I forget, again, it was a tweet, I think, that I read. And they basically said, women are expected to be responsible for men's drunkenness and their own. So what a man does when he's drunk to a woman is also a woman's responsibility. What a woman does when she's drunk is also her responsibility. And that is like, just in a nutshell, the way society treats men and women or boys and girls. Um, And I did, I would have, (laughs) this got quite a reaction, I think, from a lot of like boy moms because they got a bit upset with me. But I said that, um, just remember that daughters are not a place to put your trauma um, and neither are they, um, you know, a place to outsource your parenting of your sons, you know, um, because a lot of women later on in life have to end up mothering grown men. And again, again this whole story really brought back that to me so hard and fast yeah. with Wendy um, and, and her relationship with Peter, because the expectation is you know that that you know, people always say that, but that this is something which I keep hearing from people. Oh, boys are so much easier to raise than girls, and it's like, yeah, because you spend all of your time yelling at girls and making them have this knowingness which they don't really need to have at the age of two, three, four, five. But you send all the boys to go out and play, and just assume later on in life their wives and their you know girlfriends will end up 
teaching them all of the life skills that you should have taught them at an early age. Like, it's something which in South Asian communities we're having a very big conversation about right now um, and what it means. But yeah, there were a lot of like, I think older South Asian women who got a bit upset at me for saying this. And it's like, hit a nerve, did I? <laughs> hit a nerve, did I? Like, because I do feel like it's, it's not, it isn't just South Asian communities for a very long time. Like the amount of women who have told me that they've had to raise the men that they are dating. You know, teach them how to do like basic things, how to use the washing machine, how to make a bed, how to do like, you know, how to clean dishes, how to, you know, uh, do, do uh, how to vacuum, how to basic sweep. Basic stuff. Yeah. How to cook. Like the mm. amount of men who don't know how to cook and like have had to learn because their girlfriends have taught them how to cook. And I mean, then that's something you obviously, a lot of your work kind of delves into. And actually, I thought a kind of um, like positive, optimistic place to kind of wrap up the discussion of all this tangly stuff might just be actually, because I would love for you to just talk a little bit about these are the words, because I feel like, you know, I, I think it's fair to say so much of that is about talking to young people and how they can process all of this tangly, knotty stuff. So I thought that might be a nice place to just kind of wrap it up in terms of where we're going. Uh. <laughs> oh, just, just, I do think like before, before I, 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 I do that, I do want to say that there, you know, J.M. Barry is a technically amazing writer. Um, oh, I absolutely. Think, I think his descriptions, I said this before, I think his descriptions are beautiful. I think his, um, the, the, the quality of that magic that certain writers have that are able to do, I think in today's day and age, I would say Sita Brahmachari is one of them who just is able to just spin magic in such a beautiful way that you just run away with the story. I think J.M. Barry does that. I think um, if there were more, uh, if this book was written today and J.M. Barry existed today, I think he would write a very different book with the same elements. Um, and I think it would have been yeah, it would have been a much different, much, a very different book to experience. But I did want to say that I think there's a beauty in his writing. Absolutely. And I suppose, you know, it's, we should, that's a, that's a big reason why it has endured. I mean, like we said a few times, the second star to the right. And I mean, stars is something that you t write about a All lot. And I think, you know, 93 but 93% Stardust oh, is correct. one of my favourites of your poems. And I Thank know it's you. a lot of people's <laughs> favourites, but it's, you know, that's perhaps, uh, uh, you know, the magic. There's something, share, a shared magic there, I think, between that second star to the right and your poetry. <sighs> so y you're right that there is, there is moments of absolute wonder and it's beautifully yeah, written. Beautifully written. Um, even even now reading it um, as a storyteller, there are sentences which are structured with such beauty that you can look at and go, "That's that's beautiful writing." It, it is like yeah. just on a on a technical level, that is a beautiful, a beautiful paragraph, a beautiful um, way to tell a story. Um, and the way, and I think what was what really did strike me as well was like structurally the way he you know, things didn't just happen for the sake of happening. They were a very crucial part of, you know, taking the story forward. For instance, when they arrived and they talk about the island, you know, it wasn't just him telling us what the island was. It was the children observing the island from on top as they were flying over it and seeing, 
you know, each and every part of the island. And I think that was so beautifully, that really brought the wonder and the magic home. You know, it really does. Um, yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to say something about why yeah. like this 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 book is 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 both incredible and incredibly frustrating <laughs> to read. Yeah, that sums it up. It it there is so much of wonder and magic about it. Um, but yes, as we have discussed also a lot of other stuff (laughs) but 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 coming back to what you asked about these other words um and you spoke about these other words uh I I loved writing these other words I I wanted these other words to be um what the younger version of me when I was a child what I needed I, I I always saw it as like when I pitched it I said I want this book to be the big sister that I never had right so I wanted to be like somebody I could go to um, or, or someone a young person could go to when they're looking for answers to big things. Um, and I've always, like, I love working with teenagers. Um, and I've always found that the way that the world deals with teenagers is, 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 is isn't fair, right? So, um, it, it's quite funny because I think the way that J.M. Barry describes two is the end of everything. For me, I've always looked at the age of 12 and I found it a very sad age. Because suddenly, everybody starts expecting you. You they, people stop treating you like a child, and you become yeah. an adult in waiting. Mm-hmm. And that's awful. Something terrible happens when children are eleven or twelve years old. That people just suddenly stop treating them like their children, and they become adults in waiting. And every teenager is a child who is grieving their childhood without realizing it, right? And I wanted this book to honor that right? You're going through all of these big things for the first time. You know, you're you're starting to question your parents and you're being told, don't question me. And that's not working anymore because your questions are quite big and they matter to you, right? Like, so they, they, it can't just be because I said so. It has to be, give me a reason why you said right. so, right? Or, or you fall in love for the first time and your heart gets broken and everyone goes, ah, it's, you know, it's just puppy love. You'll get over it. Okay, but show me how. Right. Right. And that's what these other words is for. Show me how. It is showing you how. It's honoring the fact that your heart was broken for the first time. And that's an awful thing to have to live with. And I'm sorry that happened to you. Even if it happens to everybody, I'm sorry that happened to you. And I think that's, you know, that's all that young people, especially teenagers, need to hear is the validation of that experience of, of, yeah, it's happened to everyone, but it happened to me and it feels like my world is ending. Can you please help me? But they don't have the language to say that, right? And and that's what I wanted this book to be. Um, it's the U.S. release date today. Um, oh, congratulations! Thank you. Yeah, it's come out a, a year later in the U.S. A uh, year, year and ten months, I think. But I, I, I do feel and I hope that it does for children there what I hope, what I think it must, it might have done because I have had so many young people come up to me especially young women, um, I say young women, teenage girls come up to me and say, um, you know, this really meant a lot to me. Thank you for writing it. Um, you know, I, I do think there were, uh, the interesting thing for me is like multiple generations of a family reading the book and coming up to me and some of them, the older women saying, oh, yeah. someone, someone gave it to their grandmother and they were like, why didn't I have this when I was growing up? I love that. And again, I guess, you know, it speaks to so much of what I wanted to do 
with this podcast, even if the books are tricksy, complicated chocolate <laughs> books like Peter Pan, it's just to celebrate that we're all kind of made of those stories that we encounter. And as writers, we're all kind of in conversation with those books, yeah. whether they're complicated or uncomplicated conversations. And we all are kind of putting out into the world things that are a response to the children we were and the books that we read. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all the books that we wished existed when we were children. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Lovely. Well, thank you so much uh, for coming and <laughs> tang <laughs> tangling with Peter Pan with me. <laughs> I think that was a lot of fun. Um, I really do. I think uh, we covered all of the good things and the bad things. <laughs> absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Book Wandering. If you enjoyed the episode, then spreading the word would be hugely appreciated by sharing it online, telling your friends, or leaving a review. You can find me at A Case of Books across social media, or you can email me at annajamesauthor at gmail.com. The podcast is produced by Adam Collier with artwork by Hester Kitchen, and we'll be back next week with Sophie Dahl on The Wolves of Willoughby Chase by Joan Aiken. Until then, happy book wandering. Mm -hmm.